Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name's Tom Rabbit. Thank you so much for joining me for this particular podcast. Now, back in the, the early 90s, I went to the cinema and I completely and absolutely wrecked my cinema experience when I spent however long Jurassic Park runs for thinking about the ethical dimensions of tampering with science. I don't know why I did that. I completely screwed up a good movie and I didn't appreciate the fun until I saw it a second time later when it was broadcast on television. But the fact that occurred to me is a convenient segue into some of the moral and dilemmas and and issues that are raised in a new book by Tracy Spicer, a journalist, author, broadcaster, and generally famous about almost everything, um, on the way things are developing and have developed with technology. The book's called Man Made, and Tracy tackles some curious ethical issues about technology and how technology is developed. Tracy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and hanging out with me. Thanks for having me on the show, Tom. Absolute pleasure. Now, man-made is an interesting title. Defend it. Well, it was actually suggested to me by a male friend because he works in IT and when I brought up the idea with him seven years ago, he said you should definitely write this book about how racism, sexism and bigotry is embedded in the machines that will run our futures from the data sets through to the programmers and then uh, exacerbated by machine learning. And he said you really should have a title that talks about the artificiality of artificial intelligence, which is man-made, and also leans on the idea that we need more diversity and inclusion in the sector because, you know, even him as a man was getting very frustrated by where it was going with this enormous amount of power being held by a small number of people in Silicon Valley. So that's my defence of the title, man-made, and I love it. (laughs) I'll I'll take that as as a given, and I'll accept that for the moment <laughs> until I come up with a reason not to. But it, it it it's interesting that that is where it kind of starts for you, because if we go back even further into into the into the biblical realm, um, when we think about things being man made, you. And I thought about this not so long ago with, with this debate on with the, with the debate that we're having in, in this community of ours and on you know, things transitioning from point A to point B, people transitioning from point A to point B. And I pointed out to somebody, well, let's go back to the to that book called the Bible and let's go back to Genesis. And they said, why? Well, there's a transition that happens in Genesis. Somebody decided that the male would be the first of the human species to be created. Clearly, there was a problem. The only serviceable part of a male that gets used to create woman is a rib. (laughs) So, the prototype was a slight dud. And what followed uh, was an improvement. Now, how do you... You know, when you think about the way in which, in a sense, I use that analogy to focus on the 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 fact that there is a heavy male presence in many developments 
in society, not just IT. How much of that has driven, drove you as you wrote Man Made? Because I've had a brief look at the manuscript, and it, 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 there's a whole heap of stuff in there about the way we build things and yes. the way men have dominated stuff. Yes, and for this I was inspired by a book called Invisible Women by an author and advocate by the name of Caroline Criado Perez. And she broke it down that most design in society is built around the size of an average male body. So, for example, crash test dummies in cars for decades, the the body was was male. There were no female bodies and therefore it became more dangerous for a woman to be in a car, more women are injured in car accidents because of that. In fact, it took until 2022 for Swedish designers to make a female body shape for crash test dummies. And it's even things like office temperatures of the air conditioning being set for a male metabolic rate, which makes it about five degrees too cold, particularly for younger women, and therefore they can't work as well. So and there was even that, that incredible example in space. There's even this kind of discrimination in space. They were going to send up a woman for a spacewalk, but I think it was even a couple of weeks beforehand, they couldn't find a suit for her. There was only uh, small, medium and large for men, but even the small wasn't small enough for her. So this whole idea, and I love your analogy about Adam and the rib, because it's a default mechanism. Everything is designed for the male default. Even voice recognition technology works much better for men than it does for women. And women are an afterthought. And therefore, when you're thinking about a technologically enabled world, it won't work as well for us in the same way as it won't work as well for people in marginalised communities. You know, there are instances of people with disabilities being locked in smart homes because the smart home technology isn't being designed by people who live with disabilities. I guess that you've touched on one of the key arguments of my book, which is we need people who use the technology, every person who uses the technology, to be involved in its design from the get-go. When I, mean, I use some smart technology, obviously rely on some artificial intelligence. That's not me confessing that I don't have enough of my own. But the... the, the and in, in, in my case, it's a, it's a way of sort of acknowledging the fact that I am partially deaf. Um, my right eye wobbles like nobody's business when I've got my glasses off and, you know, there's other, you know, other sort of minor design flaws that I've had pop up over, over my existence. But I use it to compensate for things. Um, now... We're both in a unique position where we work with technology, but also we probably seek technology to help us out when we're in a bit of strife. What, um, how have you found tech, given what you've just mentioned, to have evolved in your circumstances? Because You've had to use you've had to use technology, I imagine, to deal with some of the issues that have emerged over the past couple of years for you. 
Yes, indeed. I love technology. I say at the start of the book, this is not an anti-tech book because saying you're anti-tech is like saying you're anti-air or anti-water. It's in Maslow's hierarchy of needs now. So we can use the technology. <laughs> it really is. We can use the technology for good, not evil. And uh, obviously I've been surrounded by technology working for television and radio for most of my professional life. But assistive technologies have really helped in the last year and a half since I've had a dynamic disability living with long COVID. It's an energy production disorder. So last year I spent most of the time in bed or in a wheelchair. And even getting up to go to the toilet, to turn a light on and to open a door expended so much energy, I would have to lie down in a darkened room for an hour after to recover. So while when I started writing the book, I was criticising smart home technology because a lot of it's just gimmicky and it doesn't really deeply help people. But then I read a lot of writing from people with disabilities who said, look, convenience for the rest of you is basic existence for us. It's a need. And I sort of wished I had incorporated smart home technology in the house to be able to turn the light on to open the door remotely because anything that can technologically support you when you physically can't do the things you used to be able to do is absolutely priceless. Now, one of the things that... Um... I will. I think it's appropriate to give an example, given the discussion. Um, unfortunately, over a period of time, my GP and others that I visit periodically discovered that I do have a propensity for gout to pop up. Not for any reason. No, I don't drink. For those listening who think you must get to the... Um, inebriated occasionally, don't drink, haven't drunk for years, but because of the way my body works, gout happens. And part of the reason for me getting smart tech into parts of the house is so that I don't have to hobble to a light switch that's at the other end of a room in order to get, in order to put a light on. Because it's painful. It hurts. I mean, aside from the fact that you're, you're wobbling like a penguin from one place to the other, which is not a good, not generally not a good look unless you're in the movies, but <laughs> but, but it does hurt. And any anything you can do to assist yourself is better. Thank you for sharing that example because, you know, this is where artificial intelligence could be a boon for people living with chronic illness disability, anything like that. And we make up a huge percentage of the population. There's some incredible medical technology that's being developed at the moment. Things like instead of just swallowing a pill, you can swallow something that actually has a GPS tracker on it. It can go to the actual organ that's being affected in your body and deliver the medicine directly there without it having to go through the rest of your bloodstream. There's an algorithm now and an app called Mirai that can tell someone if they're going to have breast cancer in the next five years. So all of this um, artificial intelligence, which has been advancing exponentially during the pandemic, my great wish is that it would be targeted towards helping people who need it the most rather than just making a lot of money for the big four accounting firms in the top end of town. <laughs> Where now one of the one of the things that I love doing with podcasts like this when we talk about books that are coming out is not just the content, and I dare say we haven't given people too many spoilers, not just the content, 
the subject matter, which is fun stuff to explore. But, you know, where a book starts in somebody's mind compared to where it finishes. I wrote one on Crown Casino last year called Crown Playing in the Shadows, available at all good bookstores and wilkinspublishing.com.au and all of that. And I started writing it in the middle. Oh, really? In the middle. It didn't start right from the start. The first chapter I tackled was a chapter on something that I'd crafted already in my head. So I started writing, I wrote a chapter in the middle and then built the thing. So by the time I'd written most of the book, I was then writing the introduction when things had sort of settled down. Now, how did you start man-made? Where did it begin? The middle, three quarters in, started front, what did you do? Or are you, or you're not as crazy as me, I take it? No, I think it's fascinating that you started in the middle because when I think back, because obviously it's a long process with publishing companies. As you know, they want to see a structure, they want to see a sample chapter. And the two sample chapters I wrote, one was from probably about a quarter of the way through uh, and one was from the middle. So I guess in a way I started with the middle as well. But I... Oh, always... you're crazy like me, Spicer. Thank you. <laughs> you might be. You might <laughs> my eyes to it. <laughs> Isn't it funny? But it's it's a lot of things that people don't think about are the, the structures within a book. And I tend to think kind of mathematically. I think using the rule of threes, you know, that thing that both Pythagoras and Voltaire spoke about, that the human brain remembers things in groups of three. So with both of my books, I chunked them out into three separate areas. And with this one, it was um, the history, the present and the future, because that made narrative sense to me. So, yes, I did start in the middle, but then I went back to the start. <laughs> but I, I'm while we're talking, I'm actually running my eyes over and I'm trying to remember where I started my book on um, the Hain Royal Commission. Um, and I think it... it it was, a, again, it was a similar thing. It was a chapter somewhere in the middle. Yes, it was a structure, but it was a sort of survival mechanism. Now, what what, what chapter do I know the most about mm. is going to require me to read less of, given that I've already read a lot about X, and how can I get that sense of completion and satisfaction as a writer? to say, okay, that's locked away. I'm not going to change my mind on what's in that chapter at all. Moving right along. Definitely. It's really smart because that builds your confidence as well because, as you know, writing is a confidence trick. It's a very, it is, it's a very isolated job. You're sitting there in your office like I am at home with your computer you don't have a lot of other readers early on. And so you've got to have confidence in yourself to think, okay, someone's going to want to read this. So you need to lean on the content that you're most comfortable with. Otherwise, I think so many of us would give up because it's a very, it's a wonderful job, but it can be a very lonely and a little bit of a frightening job as well because you're sort of putting your heart and soul out there on the page and asking people to judge it. Yeah, there's a sense of vulnerability to that. But also when you're when you sort of adrift from a communal environment, 
like a newsroom where you got everybody running around yelling, shouting, saying, blah. Um, it, when you're doing the ed editorial cycle thing, there's a structure and everything sort of goes through the process and and it gets broadcast or it gets published for the next day. But when you've got a book um, in front of you or a book project that you're looking at, it doesn't get done unless you turn the goddamn you know, engines on. So sort of say, well, uh, okay, I'm two-thirds of the way through the first chapter. I'm nearly there with the start of this process. Exactly right. And you have to create your own rituals to get you through. For example, uh, prior to getting sick, I would always go for a nice walk, even just for 20 minutes before writing, you know, that whole Mark Twain idea of clearing the mind so you can let the ideas come in and then they sort of gestate on the page. You, but, you, you, but, but the problem I've got with clearing your mind is that you don't want to clear too much of it, otherwise there's nothing left. That's true. You don't want it to be an empty vessel. It's absolutely true. But I'll never forget when I switched from broadcasting to writing and a very well-known writer, he's an absolutely beautiful writer, uh, but I won't name him because he's lovely, but I thought it was an unfortunate comment. I went to him for mentorship and advice and he said, oh, you've got to wait for the muse to come. The muse might come at three o'clock in the morning. You've got to get out of bed and write. And at that point in time, I had a four-year-old and a five-year-old and I was working at a full-time job in television. And I thought, man, I can't wait for the muse to write. So I think it was good to be able to teach myself just to sit down at the computer and say, damn the muse, I'm just going to write anyway. I mean, how does it work for you, Tom? Do you wait for inspiration to strike you or you just sit down and churn it out? Depends. I mean, it, 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 it's, for example, the Crown one was the publisher commissioning me directly to write the book. So there was no question about whether it was going to get published or not. Um, it was a function of sitting down and, and for those people who think I'm crazy already, I work with four computer monitors. Um, uh, so when the Crown book was sort of reaching its completion, I would be looking at the WA report, the Victorian World Commission report, and the New South Wales Inquiry report on three separate screens. And then sitting there going, okay, so what did WA say about James Packer? What did the Victorians say about James Packer? What did New South Wales say about James Packer? Search PDFs and then dive into the one screen I had with my manuscript on and basically tap away so I was satisfied with what I was building away. So, yeah, sort of crazy. Um, it worked towards deadline in that case, but in other times it's, um, if it's an opinion piece or something like that, that I just sit down and leisurely write for, for a few hours. Um, a thought's got to strike me and I want to be, and I want to see that I've got three or four key points I'm going to make. So it depends. Absolutely. That um, makes perfect sense. And your image of all the screens really exemplifies what a writer's life is like, because you have all of this, a little bit like data, actually, you have all of this material, you've Absolutely. got to condense it, you've got to simplify it, you've got to use analogy, metaphor, storytelling, humour, data statistics, whatever you can to get it across to the audience. 
So I did a similar thing just with the one screen because I did about 20 different interviews of experts around the world for my book, but I also did a lot of deep research into academic papers. So I had the interviews on one part of my desktop, the research on another part, and then my Word document in the middle, and it was all about bringing it together, which is kind of fun. Look, that creative aspect is incredibly joyous. Now, um, you've been really, really generous with your time, and it's been an absolute hoot. But there's a couple more questions I've got to ask. One is, given the state of, given where you're at today, is there anything you miss about television? Oh, people ask me this all the time. And I was in it, Channel 9 last week. And I was wondering whether I would think, oh, gosh, I really miss this. And I don't miss it at all for a couple of reasons. One is I was really fortunate to have more than 30 years working in television. And that was a pretty good innings. I didn't think as a teenager when I wanted to be a journalist that A, I'd even be able to be a journalist or B, that I'd last that long. And in that time, I was able to do news and current affairs and lifestyle and pretty much documentary, everything that I always wanted to do, I did. And I'm happy about that. But the other reason is uh, I admire people who work in television at the moment because the industry has changed dramatically. I'm not saying they're digging ditches. It's not that kind of difficult job, but they are working 14 hours a day. They're doing live crosses for radio and television. They're also writing newspaper pieces. And it's become a real sort of difficult churn and burn kind of industry, whereas when I started, you had more time to think about the ideas and the messages you wanted to get across and there was more in-depth investigative journalism. So I don't miss it for those two reasons. And I get the same kind of joy of sitting there and looking at a blank page and thinking how I'm going to fill it now as the joy I used to get when I was out on the road or, or on set as a television um, reporter and presenter. Yeah. yeah so the, um, everything you wanted to do, you did. <laughs> and it, and you've got that closure in in your own mind to say, well, that's yes. yeah, that that was all good. Thirty years of all of that was great fun. Now we move on to the next thing. Yeah, exactly. And my idea from here on is, you know, if my health holds out, to write a book every five years. Um, because I enjoy the publishing industry as well. I enjoy meeting readers. And it's that whole theatre of ideas as well, talking about, and you love this, Tom, I know you do, talking about big picture ideas and policies and society and politics and social justice. I mean, that's where my passion lies. What's next? <laughs> next I'm going to have a rest after this book tour because I'm really happy to be 80% better and able to go out and you know do events and meet readers and it's just so you know fulfilling and fun but I do want to really get on top of these health issues before I write another book and look my kids are older teenagers now I just want to spend the next couple of years spending as much time with them as possible before they leave home so my goals are very family and personal related, as well as just continuing to churn out books for as long as my health can do it. <laughs> well, you're probably not the only one in this conversation that's reflecting on that. Um, yeah. <laughs> I've been talking to Tracy Spicer, uh, the author of Man Made, and many of you listening will know her from many other places, many other spaces. Now, Tracy, when can people 
where can people get hold of man-made? Well, this is the good thing. You can buy man-made from almost any bookstore. You can get the ebook online from whatever your favourite Providor is, Booktopia or Amazon or whatever. Um, and the other really fun thing actually was I recorded an audio book a month ago and you can get that from Audible because a lot of people I know in the chronic illness community say, oh, gosh, I just don't have the energy to read a book. So an audio book is a good substitute. And you're still on the road doing tour. Yes, that's right. I'll be going all around Australia over the next three or four months and I usually just post where I'm appearing on my social media accounts. So I'd love to meet you if you have an interest in any of the things that we've talked about. Tracy, it's been an absolute joy. Thank you so much for making time. Right back at you, Tom. Thank you.